I want you to go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 7 with me. Now many of you know that um, I do IT work for a living and uh, I spend the bulk of my time here in central Ohio. I cover um, Columbus, Dayton, Cincinnati. Um, but I also cover the state of Kansas and part of Missouri. So that means I have to occasionally travel. Now the difficulty in doing that is when I go out to Kansas, I have specific jobs to do. And because I don't stay out there for more than a week usually, that requires that I come up with a plan before I head out and I have very specific things to accomplish and usually I cram as much into that week as I can possibly cram in because the trips out there are fairly expensive. Every time I go out there, it probably costs around 2500 bucks or so for the hotel, the airline, and all that kind of stuff. So obviously it makes sense to do as much as I possibly can when I go out there. So I put together my plan and inevitably... Every time I go out to Kansas, I get out there and I find out that there's other stuff for me to do because people want things. So I will go out there, say, um, to do a particular job, and then I walk into one of the offices and I find out that there's three or four or five other things that these people need me to do. And the first thought into my mind is, but I've got this one thing I have to do and I'm here to do this one thing. And if I do these other things, I get distracted and it means I might not get the one thing done. For instance, the last time I was out, I went to the downtown office, and um, as I walked in the door, I had all these people say, oh, I'm so glad you're here because I have this and this and this, and then as I walked, to, walked past one of the other offices, a woman kind of yelled out from the, the door, oh, by the way, I've got these monitors here on the floor. Jim dropped them off and said, you'd be more than happy to put them in place here today while you're here, and I'm like, uh, okay, I'll, I'll get to that, and then as I walk, same thing on the next door, and the same thing on the next door. Because the manager had told him, oh, Mike's here. Whatever you need done, he'll be here to do for you. And immediately in my mind, I'm thinking, I've got one thing to do here today, and this is critical that I get this done. So I couldn't afford to be distracted from that mission, but somehow you've got to find a way to do it. You take care of it. Sometimes it means working till 10, 11 o'clock at night and then getting back up the next morning and heading out. Um, but I always have to figure out a way to do it. But it's that way every single time. And I've learned not to get frustrated. In fact, I've learned to almost expect these interruptions. I'll be planning another trip out to um, Kansas here probably in May. And it'll probably be one of the most critical trips I make out there because I'm redoing parts of their infrastructure. I'm going to be replacing their network. And there's going to be five offices I'm going to be doing. And this stuff can go sideways in a hurry. And so it's almost like as I'm planning this, I'm like, I can't do anything else while I'm out there because this is it. What do you suppose is going to happen? I'm going to get out there and have all kinds of other things I'm going to have to do, right? I'll have to make it all work. The passage we're going to look at today is in some respects like that. On a small scale, Jesus sets out to go to a place away from the crowds. He's got a purpose. He wants to get away. He wants a little bit of time to relax, if you want to call it that, or at least take a deep breath. And so he goes outside of Israel to get away for a little bit. That's on a small scale. But then on a larger scale, Jesus actually has a specific mission, which was to be sent to the children of Israel. In fact, he will tell us in a, a counterpassage today that he was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. And so there's these two missions, if you will, that we're going to look at today in our text. One of them is simply for Jesus to get away. The other is the bigger mission of going to Israel. And what happens is he starts out on that and immediately gets interrupted. Something sort of gets thrown at him, and it's going to relate to two specific events. And we're going to kind of see 
how this all plays out, but how this sort of correlates to this idea of being interrupted is that even in the midst of that, even though Jesus had in his bigger plan seeking the lost sheep of Israel, when he's confronted by a Gentile, actually two Gentiles in this case, he still takes the time to respond to their faith. And so we're going to look at that today. We're in uh, Mark chapter 7, starting in verse 24. I'm going to go ahead and read that. Mark 7, verse 24. It says, Jesus got up and went away from there to the region of Tyre. And while he, or when he entered a house, he wanted no one to know of it, yet he could not escape notice. So the area that he went to is actually Gentile territory. It's about 20 miles north of Israel. This is the only time in the Gospels that it's recorded that Jesus went outside of Israel. So he's in Gentile territory territory. Now most Jews didn't associate with Gentiles. They considered Gentiles to be unclean. How many of you remember the story of um, Peter when he's up on the rooftop and God brings down the, the um, blanket, if you will, with the pork products on it and basically invites him to eat bacon? Well, that's offensive to the Jews, right? Because the Jews weren't supposed to eat pork. So God brings this down, and basically Peter's like, and the Lord says, eat. And he says, no, 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 I can't eat. That's unclean. And the Lord tells him what? Don't call unclean what I call clean. And he then used that with Peter to teach Peter that it's okay to go to the Gentiles. And why is that important? Because at that point, ministry to the Gentiles exploded. In fact, Paul himself was sent to the Gentiles. Well, what that reflects is that there was this idea that the Gentiles were somehow unclean. They weren't supposed to associate with the Gentiles. In fact, when the Jews would walk through a Gentile territory, sometimes they would walk, take a long way around to avoid Gentile territory, but if they absolutely had to go through Gentile territory, when they would get to the border, they would take their sandals off and dust them off. And the reason was not to take any of that nasty Gentile dirt home with them. So, for Jesus now to go off to Gentile territory, how do you suppose people would have viewed that? They wouldn't have seen it favorably, would they? Well, what's interesting about this is, you remember our passage from last week? The debate was over what makes somebody unclean. And Jesus taught them that it's not what goes into the mouth, but rather what comes out of the heart. I don't think that Mark includes this here um, for any other reason, in some respects, than to sort of show a demonstration of what Jesus had just taught. In other words, he's trying to help the Pharisees understand that, that their rules and their regulations and all their religiosity is unimportant. That what's ultimately important is what comes out of the heart. And then Jesus immediately does something offensive to him and goes into Gentile territory kind of puts an explanation point on what he just taught. And so Mark's inclusion of this specific episode may very well likely be for that purpose. We've seen that with Mark, how he carefully arranges events. He doesn't always do them in chronological order, but he arranges them by theme and purpose and puts them in certain places to make a certain point. And sometimes that point is a little more subtle. And so I think this is one of those subtle instances where Mark is including this to sort of put that exclamation point on um, the Pharisees' comments that, you know, the rules are what's important. And Jesus is saying, no, it's what comes out of the heart. And so he goes off into Gentile territory, something that would have been highly offensive to the Jews. But... There's also another purpose. Verse 24 says that he entered the house, he wanted no one to know of it. Yet he could not escape notice. Another purpose was he was simply going off to get some rest away from the crowds. Remember, um, some of these crowds were 20, maybe 30,000 people in size. 
And you remember at some points, he couldn't even walk without people pressing in against him. We, we have the story of the, the woman that reached out and touched his robe. And you remember his res, or the response of the disciples. Are, are you crazy? How come you're asking who touched you? Everybody's touching you, Jesus! So he was in that kind of environment. Um, we're told his family came to rescue him one time because he was so busy he couldn't even take time to eat. And so Jesus is he's human. He's, he's God in flesh, but he's still human. And so he needs time to get away. We know that he took time off to go up to the mountains and pray sometimes. Well, this is one instance where it appears he was trying to get away from the crowds to some respect. But there was another purpose, and it was probably a bigger purpose. We're going to see that in a moment here. And it has specifically to do with reaching out to the Gentiles. Look at verse 25. But after hearing of him, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately came and fell at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile of the Syrophoenician race. And she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he was saying to her, Let the children be satisfied first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered and said to him, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table feed on the children's crumbs. And he said to her, Because of this answer, go, the demon has gone out of your daughter. And going back to her home, she found the child lying on the bed, the demon having left. That's our first episode we're going to look at here today. So upon learning... This woman actually comes to Jesus out of desperation. Now, the first thing we have to notice about this is that she's a Gentile. Remember, Jesus is in Gentile territory. It says that she's a Gentile of the Syrophoenician race. Matthew basically says that she's a descendant of the Canaanites. Now, we all know who the Canaanites were from the Old Testament. Basically, enemies of the Jews. Well, she was a descendant of the Canaanites. Second, she was a woman. And in this day... For a woman to approach a rabbi or a teacher like this was unusual. It was not necessarily acceptable. In fact, remember the woman that had reached out to touch Jesus' robe? You remember how she did that? She tried to do it stealthily, sort of quietly. She didn't want to be seen. It wasn't just because of her condition. Remember Jesus talking to the woman at the well? Concerned some folks because of that. I'm not saying that's right. It's just the way that it was. And so we find this situation here where this woman approaches Jesus. We know that it's partly out of desperation because she says so, but that in and of itself would have been an act of desperation because, um, again, the woman that approached Jesus to touch his robe understood the culture of the time, would have done it quietly. This woman didn't do it quietly, and we're going to see that in just a moment here. So this would have been a pretty big step for her to do exactly what she did. She's in desperate straits. The reason we're told is because her little daughter was possessed by an unclean spirit. And I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 15, and I want you to keep your fingers at Mark 7 and at Matthew 15. Now, I know you got ten fingers, so you should be able to do that. Matthew chapter 15 and Mark 7. Keep your fingers in both locations, because we're going to be bouncing back and forth. When we turn to Matthew chapter 15, starting at verse 22, we see the exact same story, but told from, from a slightly different perspective. We look at verse 22. And a Canaanite woman from that region came out and began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. Cruelly demon-possessed there is reflective of a demon that was doing likely um, physical things to this daughter. Um, There's a story in Luke chapter 9. It's also in Mark where it describes a demon that is causing a young boy to go into convulsions. He is thrashing him around. It says that it slams him to the ground. It causes him to froth at the mouth. 
talks about going into convulsions. In fact, when, when the demon finally leaves the young boy, the text says that it's as if he's dead because of the violence done to this young man. And that's the same language that this woman uses here to describe what's happening to her daughter. So Matthew describes it as cruelly demon-possessed. Matthew also tells us here in verse 22 that she's screaming to the Lord and says, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. Jesus' disciples were so irate over this. Look at Matthew chapter 15, verse 23. But he didn't answer her a word, and his disciples came and implored him, saying, Send her away, because she keeps shouting at us. The language that's used there is that this was something she did continually, over and over. This woman was following Jesus as he walked, crying out to him, and continued to do that over and over. She was not quiet. She was not trying to do it privately. She was in such desperation that she wasn't unwilling to make a scene to get Jesus' attention. Again, that was something that was not acceptable in their culture or society for women to do this. But it didn't matter to her because she was desperate. Absolutely desperate. Even when Jesus seemingly ignores her, look at verse 25. She came and began to bow before him, saying, Lord, help me. In other words, she stepped in front of him, got in his way, and continued to beseech him to help her. Clearly what we see here is a woman who is in desperate straits, desperately needs the help of Jesus. Now what's striking about this, you can, you can stay there for just now, we're going to stay in Matthew for a couple of verses here, but what's striking about this is that at first it appears that Jesus is uninterested in helping her. And it's a puzzling text. You read the commentaries on this, and they all seem to struggle a little bit with, well, exactly what is going on? Why is Jesus doing this? Because he, he seemingly here does ignore her to some respects. In fact, if you look at verse 22 of Matthew chapter 15, And a Canaanite woman from that region came and began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. And look at verse 23. But he didn't answer her a word. It's as if she wasn't even there. Does that trouble anybody? A little troublesome to me. Jesus clearly knew she was in desperation, but he seemingly ignores her here. In fact, even when he does respond, look at what he says in verse 24. I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In other words, he apparently or appears to ignore her, please, and then when she gets in front of him, he says, well, but I can't help you because I only came to help Israel. Does that cause anybody a little bit of tension, a little bit of struggle this morning? It might seem a little bit harsh, but it has to be seen in light of God's unfolding redemptive plan. And we're going to see how this plays out. Because Jesus isn't ignoring her. There's a lesson to be learned here. Something that he will ultimately teach us. So let's look at this in light of God's redemptive plan. If you remember, God's plan revolves, I'll say completely, if you will, around Israel. Remember God's promise to Abraham. How would God save mankind? He would do it through Israel. Because he promised Abraham that the world would be blessed through his seed. So God's plan began with Israel. If you go throughout the whole Old Testament, what you see is God's promise of a Messiah to who? To Israel. Is there any single letter in the Old Testament that was primarily written for anybody other than Israel? No. God's plan focused 
completely and solely around Israel, that he would bless, he would redeem, he would save mankind, but would accomplish it through his work with Israel. Then when he sent the Messiah, Jesus, where did he send him? To Israel. There were many places in the world at that time with much bigger populations, but God sent Jesus to Israel. And so when Jesus says that I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel, what he's basically doing is saying my earthly mission is Israel. It's not the Gentiles right now. Gentiles would come later. And so what Jesus is doing is much like me with Kansas. I go out there, I've got a plan, I have things I have to do. There's certain things I can only do out in Kansas. If I don't do those when I'm out there and I end up back here, I cannot do them. And Jesus is saying, I was sent to earth for the purpose of working with the lost sheep of Israel. So he's referring primarily to his earthly ministry, and he's referring to this specific time. He knows that a time is coming when the Gentiles would be brought into the fold. In fact, Paul goes to great lengths to describe that in Romans chapter 11. Remember when we were studying Romans chapter 11? It says that we are grafted in. We are grafted into Israel, and so God must first accomplish what he needs to accomplish with Israel. Now, his plan with Israel is not done, but the first step of that was sending his Messiah, his Savior, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and did it for three and a half years when Jesus was here in his earthly ministry. I want you to look at something. Look at verse 27. Flip back to Mark now, chapter 7, verse 27. Look at what Jesus says, because he, he, he paints this picture beautifully in the parable that he now uses. When the woman, it says in verse 26, kept asking him, notice it says kept asking, she's begging him, his response is, let the children be satisfied first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And notice he starts off there by saying, well, let the children be fed first. He doesn't say let only the children be fed. Who are the children in this particular instance here? Yeah, it's the Jews. It's Israel. So he paints this picture right out of their culture. Basically, a family sitting down for dinner. They're feeding the children. The dogs are under the table. The dogs want to be fed too. And Jesus says, you certainly wouldn't feed the dogs first, would you? You wouldn't take what rightfully belongs to the children and feed it to the dogs. Now that would be kind of crazy, wouldn't it? He says, let the children be fed first. Again, not only the children. He's not saying that the Gentiles, who are the dogs in this case, won't get their food, but that Israel needs to get theirs first. And it's primarily because God's redemptive plan is accomplished first through them. Think about it. How many Gentile apostles were there? None. They were all Jews. What happened at Pentecost? All Jews. The early church was primarily, consistently made up of Jews. That's God's redemptive plan at work. That's where it starts. And so Jesus says here, in some respects, well, I cannot take care of you and ignore Israel. Because Israel must be first. Now, we have to use a little bit of caution here because some would accuse Jesus here of using this dog analogy in a disparaging way. And they'll argue that the, the Jews thought of Gentiles as dogs. What's interesting about that is there's not much historical evidence that the Jews really thought of the Gentiles as dogs. It mostly comes from this passage. And they make this extrapolation. What's interesting is the word that's, there are different words for dogs and the words that are used for dogs here are basically equivalent to family pets. 
It wasn't a disparaging thing. He's basically just saying, we can't feed the pets. But what some have wanted to do with this is said that Jesus is making a disparaging comment about Gentiles and that the Jews considered them dogs. And you know, There's another Greek word for dog that refers to those mangy mutts out in the street. And they'll make some reference to that. But the reality of it here, this is not a disparaging thing. It's just an analogy that we wouldn't feed the family pets what belongs to the children. Now, we wouldn't do that as families either, would we? No. And so he gives this analogy here that we need to first feed Israel. We need to first take care of Israel, then the Gentiles. Look, I'll just read this to you, but Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Then he says this, to the Jew first, and then to the Gentile. Romans chapter 2, verse 9, he says, There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first, and also of the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first, and to the Greek. So what we have here is Jesus giving a theological lesson that his primary purpose for coming was to first go to the house of Israel. That's why he spent all of his time in Israel. That's why this is the only time we, sh- we see him going outside of Israel because his ministry and his purpose was to carry out what God had planned for Israel first. And that was to establish ultimately the church through Israel first. And so this young lady gets a theological lesson, but Jesus knows where this is going probably. Look what happens. Her response reveals a a pretty remarkable faith, especially coming from a Gentile. Look at verse 29. She is not deterred. I love this woman. She is not deterred by Jesus. He says to her, verse 29, I'm sorry, in verse, um, verse 28, but she answered and she said to him, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table feed on the children's crumbs. In other words, yeah, but Jesus, at least the family pets get some food. So, in some respects, she's almost saying, can't I at least have a crumb? This is a a clever response. Shows a certain amount of intellect with her to be able to reason with Jesus. Now, it's not really clear from the text whether she fully understood Jesus' theological significance, what he was saying. All she knew is that he could help her, and she needed to be persistent. So, look at what Jesus says in verse 28. Well, woman, your faith is great. It shall be done as you wish. I'll, I'll say this in a rather playful way. Um, and I hope it's not misinterpreted as that. But in some respects, you might say Jesus was playing with her, but not in a, dis, not a disparaging way. Meaning, he was working out her faith. How persistent would she be? I believe Jesus fully intended to help this woman. And we see that he does exactly that. But he does it as she reveals her faith to him. And we see that throughout the Gospels. In fact, at one point when Jesus was run out of the synagogue in Nazareth, it says that he couldn't perform any miracles there. And that he only performed a few. Why? Because they had no faith. Faith is a requirement to see Jesus work. And so what he's doing with this, I believe, is drawing her faith out that all those around her might see what genuine faith really is because her faith is one that is persistent. She absolutely refused to give out. And so, it's in some respects, much like Jesus is playing devil's advocate with her, 
but for a purpose of drawing out her faith and revealing the persistent faith that she has. And I believe that becomes a, a great lesson for us, if you think about it. I think sometimes our faith is almost too easy. I could get up here every Sunday morning and teach on my own abilities. I went to seminary, I studied the languages, I studied the Bible. I'm sure I could get up here in my own energy and my own strength and teach. Do I want to do that? Absolutely not. That wouldn't be faith. It would be relying on my own abilities, would it not? I can tell you, there have been times where it's been all me muscling my way through stuff. There have been times where I've been sitting down and studying and I'm struggling with something and I finally have to stop and go, you know, this is crazy. I've been studying this passage for a week now and not even prayed about it once. Maybe that's why I'm stuck. Um, Pastor Steve Mitchell over at the Fellowship Bible Chapel, first time I met him, sat down and he said, it scares me to death to get in that pulpit every week because I realize what I'm supposed to be doing. And I can do it on my own, but I have to rely on Christ, you know. Faith sometimes is too easy for us. We go through the motions, don't we? We just kind of do our thing. Sometimes we minister. Sometimes we try to share the gospel. Sometimes we just go about our life and we try to do things all on our own. And it's not an exercise of faith. We think it is because we're believers. But faith is hard sometimes. We have to be persistent. How many of us have prayed for things and when we don't get an answer, we forget about it? instead of being persistent. And so I think the lesson for us maybe in this is looking at this Gentile woman and just seeing the persistence of her faith, refusing to give up in the way that Jesus rewards that. I think this is the way Christ is. He rewards that persistence. Um, I think there are times where God doesn't necessarily answer our prayers directly or immediately, partly because he's teaching us endurance, as James says. We go through trials. But we have to be persistent in our faith. And that's exactly what we see with this woman. And Jesus actually rewards it. Let's look at the second thing that happens here. Jesus isn't done with the Gentiles yet here because there's another another event that's about to take place here, starting in verse 31. Again, he went out from the region of Tyre and came through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee within the region of Decapolis. Still an area highly populated by Gentiles. They brought to him one who was deaf and spoke with difficulty, and they implored him to lay his hands on him. Jesus took him aside from the crowd by himself and put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, he touched his tongue with saliva. And looking up to heaven with a deep sigh, he said to him, Ephtha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, and the impediment of his tongue was removed, and he began speaking plainly. And he gave them orders not to tell anyone, but the more he ordered them, the more widely they continued to proclaim it. They were utterly astonished, saying, He has done all things well. He makes even the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. Now what's interesting about this particular event is, the one prior to this with the Phoenician woman, the focus appears to be on on her faith. It's all centered sort of around the expression of her faith. In this particular passage, we don't necessarily see much about this individual's faith. I would argue he he obviously had faith, because again, faith is a requirement throughout the Gospels for healing. 
The focus of this particular event appears to be on the response of those around him, not specifically him, and their faith, if you will, or their response. In fact, the uh, example in um, Matthew is a little bit clearer to this. If you want to read uh, Matthew chapter 15, verse 29, go back there to Matthew. Matthew chapter 15, verse 29. There's actually more than one individual. Mark only mentions the one individual, but there's more individuals here. Departing from there, verse 29 of chapter 15 in Matthew. Departing from there, Jesus went along by the Sea of Galilee, and having gone up to the mountain, he was sitting there. The large crowds came to him, bringing with him those who were lame, crippled, blind, mute, and many others, and they laid them down at his feet, and he healed them. So the crowds marveled as they saw the mute speaking, the crippled restored, and the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And they glorified the God of Israel. So we notice that there's more people here than just the individual. But again, both of these texts seem to focus not so much on the individuals being healed, but on the response. If you go back, and keep your finger there for a second, but if you go back to Mark, two things here. Verse 36... Jesus told them not to tell anyone. And we've seen that before, likely because Jesus knew the crowds would get even thicker. And so he simply warns them not to tell anyone. Matthew tells us that when he went from Tyre here to Sidon, that he did it to get away as well. And so he goes ahead and he heals these folks. He warns others, or warns them not to tell anyone, probably so that more crowds wouldn't come out. Because even Jesus needed his rest, being human. But when he did that, what did they do? It says in verse 36, But the more he ordered them, the more widely they continued to proclaim it. They were obviously excited about what they had seen. But it also says in verse 37 that they were utterly astonished. It says that he has done all things well. Their opinion of him was rather high. He does all things well. He makes even the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. So they're out reporting what he had done. They were so excited they couldn't keep their tongues from talking. You go back into Matthew chapter 15, the very last thing that we see there is it says that they glorified the God of Israel. I I love that statement. They glorified the God of Israel. They were mostly pagans. But by seeing Jesus do what he had done, they began to glorify God, which likely means that they recognized exactly what God had been doing. They probably recognized that this was the Jewish Messiah. They may very well have recognized that he was the Son of God. It's unclear in the text. But the fact that they are glorifying the God of Israel means they recognize something about Israel in that. And so what is it that we maybe learn from this passage? This one's a little more difficult, I think, from a practical application standpoint. Um, And I think we have to see it in the bigger picture of what's going on in in Mark's Gospel here. Remember that we're in this section that spans about three chapters where it starts with um, this question of who do you say I am? It's Jesus when he goes, or when, um, I'm sorry, when we learn about John the Baptist's death. And we have Herod basically trying to figure out who he is. And so the, the, the section that we're in starts with that question of, well, people think he's a resurrected John the Baptist, or they think that he might be um, Elijah the prophet, or he might just be another prophet. 
And then we have the end of this section where Peter is asked specifically by Jesus, who do you say that I am? And those become the bookends for this section. So Mark's got this purpose here where he groups all these events, including these today, trying to demonstrate this is what people thought Jesus was or who they thought he was, but this is who he really is. And it ends with Jesus' confession, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah. And so what we find here is in this mix, this bigger picture, we find this little sliver where Jesus goes to the Gentiles. And we get to see how the Gentiles thought of Jesus. What did the Gentiles, when they saw Jesus performing the miracles, what did they see? Who did they say that he was? Well, we find it here in our text today when it says that they were glorifying the God of Israel. So in some respects, it's Mark's way of foreshadowing the salvation of the Gentiles that will come after Jesus' resurrection. And we get a little glimpse of it right here. But in addition to that, remember who his gospel was written to. His gospel was written primarily to Gentiles. But yet the bulk of his gospel is really about the Jews. And so in some respects, Mark takes this moment now to remind the Gentiles that he came for you as well. You're not being ignored. But God ultimately has to accomplish first and foremost what he's doing with Israel. And so this becomes a bit of a a foreshadowing, if you will, of what God is going to do with the Gentiles. Because Jesus obviously did not ignore the Gentiles. Even though his mission was to the Jews, when he's interrupted, and they come to him in faith, what does he do? He heals them. He casts out their demons. He gives them the time that they deserve. And so it's this little bit of a a foreshadowing, if you will, um, of what's to come. But it's also a way, I believe, of encouraging his readers, who, again, were most likely primarily Gentile in audience. Matthew was written primarily to a Jewish audience. Mark was written primarily to a Gentile audience. And so in some respects, if you were a Gentile in that day and age reading this, you would see yourself right there. He even loves us, the Gentiles. We're just like that Phoenician woman. We're just like this man in Sidon. So... In terms of practical application for us here, um, there may not be a lot in terms of marching orders, um, but I, I, I sit back and I think, you know, thank God that God did what he did, because I'm a Gentile. I am saved because of what Jesus did when he came and focused on Israel first. In many respects, I am a descendant of the Apostle Paul. Because had Paul not gone to the Gentiles, where would we be? Where would our hope be? And so, again, in terms of marching orders, I don't know that there's a, here's what you must do with this. Um, But it is kind of a comforting thing for me to recognize and to realize um, Jesus' mission, while focused on the Jews, had time for the Gentiles. And thank God that we get grafted in. That's where our hope lies. Now, in terms of the first example, I think the uh, walk away for us is that faith is supposed to be somewhat tenacious. I think I shared a story before. Um, when I was in seminary, um, I was a uh, diligent student. Uh, I figured somebody else was paying for my seminary, and um, so I felt as though I needed to do the best possible job I could do. So I worked hard at it, I, was, I, was, I diligently studied, and I, and I did decent. And um, I wasn't used to getting um, poor grades. And on this one particular assignment, um, I got a poor grade. 
I was a little surprised by that because I had been doing quite well. And I'm looking over the, the test as I got it back, and I'm looking at the questions. And I'm going, I know the answer to that. Why did I get it wrong? And I know the and I kept walking. I think I got like a D on it or something like that. And I'm looking at it, I'm like, but I know these answers. Well, I recognized that what I had done was I had, it was a multiple choice. And um, the way the professor did it was he arranged his test where you would have, you know, this column over here on this side of the paper, and here were all your questions and answers. And then you had A, B, C, D. Well, I would circle every answer, but he wanted you to write the answer over here. Because when I mean, he would grade it, he would take his grading guide to just put it like that, so he would have his answers right here, and he could just go check, 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 right? So every time that I'd circled a D, I wrote a B. So even though I had it circled and I had the right answer, I had written it wrong. I had dyslexic or something. So I recognized that. I went, oh. So I went, I went to the professor and I said, um, can I ask you about this? I said, I didn't do so well. He goes, yeah. He goes, it's kind of surprising. He said, you got all these wrong. And he goes, it's kind of puzzling. He said, but it is what it is. I'm like, well, you can see I circled the right answer. And he looked at it and he goes, oh, you did. Yeah. He goes, I didn't pay attention to that. He goes, but okay. And he went back to my whole test and he was like, yeah. He said, you, you would have gotten them all right. He said, um, I can see you knew it. And then he handed it back to me. Dude, you can say anything, you know. And and uh, I just like I said, um, so could I get an adjustment on the grade? He goes, no. I said, but why not? He goes, because you wrote the answers down wrong. I said, well, yeah, but you you can see that you circle. You're always telling us how the real goal is to just make sure we know the material that the tests aren't important, you know. And he's like, right. And I said, well, you just said you you can see I knew the material. And I'm getting a little bit you know agitated at this point. And, and he said, yeah, but you wrote it down wrong. I said, but you can see I circled the right answer. He goes, yeah, he said, but I, you know, I think, uh, you know, you're at seminary level, you're at master's level right now, maybe part of this is to teach you how to take a test right. And at that point, I was like, oh. And I just looked at him, I said, I, I don't think this is fair. And he goes, boy, you're a little tenacious booger, aren't you? And I looked at him, I said, I bet I am if I knew what tenacious meant. So he had to then define tenacious for me. <laughs> Basically means... Yeah, exactly, half a point off, you know. Um, but the idea of being tenacious is, you know, just not wanting to let something go. And I think one of the walkaways for us on this is when we look at this Phoenician woman, um, we saw all kinds of reactions among the Jews. We saw the crowds that would follow him and get all excited, but then started to dissipate, you know. We saw the Pharisees and how they didn't like what they saw with Jesus either. And so what's interesting is that this, we get this contrast between the response of so many of the Jews... But then what we see in the Gentiles here is this tenaciousness. An absolute tenaciousness, refusing to let go. This Phoenician woman's faith was persistent and tenacious. And I think it becomes a good example for us and what our faith should be like. We should be tenacious about it. Um, whether that is in just living our lives, whether it's the times we get distressed or disturbed or, or downtrodden because of what's going on around us, we should be tenacious in our prayers, in our faith, in our diligence, just like this Phoenician woman. And oftentimes, um, I don't know that we necessarily see that. You know, I saw an article this morning on um, Matt Walsh on... Um, he had made a comment, you know, Matt Walsh is a Catholic... Um, individual who, quite popular, basically is a blogger, a lot of Christians kind of gravitate towards him because he um, aligns a lot with values and, and other things. Um, and he recently, on a, on a radio show with Ben Shapiro, made a comment about Christians shouldn't be using the Bible to debate things like moral issues in culture and society. This is a guy who claims to be a Christian. 
Well, people got all up in arms about it. And what he was trying to say is we need to use logic and reason because they don't accept the Bible anyway. And it'd be, I'd be fine with if he, were, if he were saying, well, we can use the Bible, but we should also use logic and reason. Because that can have some value. You know, you can argue that, yeah, male is male and female is female from a purely scientific genetic standpoint. Okay, I understand. So use that too. But that's not really what he said. It's basically leave your Bible on the shelf. And I thought, no, we should be tenacious about that. We should be holding on to that Bible with clenched fist and refusing to take that out of our arsenal. When we debate issues of morality, we ought to tenaciously hold to the faith that we have and not try to argue from other standpoints purely because thinking we can somehow win them over through our logic and reason. We ought to be tenacious in holding on to the faith that we have, the declaration that we have, and that, no, the Bible says this. It may offend you, you may not accept it, but I'm not going to let that go. I'm going to be tenacious about that in the way that I argue, in the way that I debate. So again, I think we can, we can at least in the minimum, take that away. You'll have to think through that yourself in terms of what you might take away from the passage this morning as well, but for me personally, it's just a reminder of how tenacious our faith should be. And to be taught that from a Gentile, um, pretty good. Because again, you can sort of see in the big picture what Mark is doing. Most of the Jews were struggling with who Jesus was. It doesn't seem here that the Gentiles really were. They seemed to understand.